As we start our new sermon series here in Hebrews, uh, one of the things that we uh, have done is we've uh, ordered a bunch of these, these uh, scripture journals. And so this is uh, the text of Hebrews, and it's got the text on one side, and then it's got lines on the other side for taking notes. So particularly if you're a note taker and you like to, to jot down uh, things during the sermon, this is a great uh, way to do that. It's a great way to capture all the amazingly insightful things that I will say over the next number <laughs> of months. But in any case, uh, these are 350. They're in the, uh, the portico, cheaper than you can get on Amazon. So I encourage you to pick that up if that would be uh, of use for you. Okay, so here we go. New sermon series uh, starting today. I'm excited in the book of Hebrews called Steady On, Finding Strength in the Book of Hebrews. And as we see in the coming months, uh, the book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with it, if you're not familiar with it, it is all about persevering in the journey of faith. It's about staying the course when things get hard, when we are tempted to give up or to go back The metaphor, of course, of a journey is one that we use often to talk about faith, the journey of faith, but it's a metaphor that's used widely throughout all of life, not just the life of faith. To to embark on a journey, we're all on journeys in our lives. We wake up every day on various journeys, going towards various goals and destinations. Perhaps it's the journey of physical fitness with a view to losing weight the journey of extra hours at work to make more money. We study hard to get good grades. We save up to buy a home. We perhaps work out an extra hour to make the team. And on it goes. We each have goals. However ill-defined, we each have goals, and we set our course toward obtaining those goals. But invariably, along the way, in our pursuit of any worthy goal, we're going to run into challenges. Things will get hard. It's not easy to lose weight. It's not easy to gain financial stability. It's not easy to get good grades. It's not easy to save up for a home. It's not easy to work extra hard to make the team. All worthy pursuits require sacrifice, an ability to press through challenges that stand between us and our goals. And crucial for staying the course on any journey when things get hard is a belief that the payout at the end is worth whatever the pain is in the present. But for many of us, when times get hard, we can get so lost in the struggles of the moment, the struggles of the journey, that we lose sight of the goal that we are pursuing. Well, the Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was first written found themselves in that spot. They had started the journey of faith, but things had gotten challenging, and they were feeling pressure to give up. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Hebrews. Perhaps uh, you thumbed through it knowing that we were going to be having a sermon series on it, or perhaps it's a book that you've studied, but it's full of a lot of strange things for modern ears. We're going to encounter along the way angels, Jewish prophets, the mysterious priest king Melchizedek, the Levitical priestly system, animal sacrifices, ancient covenants, divine oaths, heavenly tabernacles. And we're going to do our best to explain and to understand all of these things along the way. But from the beginning to the end of the book of Hebrews, It is one long epistle dedicated to the sole pastoral purpose 
of helping these early Christians stay the course, to not give up, to keep pressing ahead. Many of the New Testament books that we read, the letters that were written by apostles to various churches, cover a whole wide array of topics. But Hebrews is very focused. It's very narrow. The whole point of the book, if you could sum it up into one message, it's don't give up, stay the course, steady on. It's a detailed reminder about the rich payout that awaits those who faithfully follow Christ at the end of the journey. And just as it was a reminder for these early Christians to whom it was written, it's a reminder for us, because all of us, I think, at times in the journey of faith need to be reminded, we need to be reminded about the, 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 good, uh, the good glory that waits for us at the end uh, of the journey of faith. What's the payout? What's the reward? Right? If we lose sight of the payout of the reward that waits for us at the end of the journey, we're going to lose strength and capacity to persevere through the trial. So my prayer for us as we engage with the book of Hebrews for the next, we'll be through, uh, going through Hebrews all the way through September. All right? So that's gonna, we're going to be in it for six months. And my prayer for us in these next six months, for those of us that are Christians, my prayer is that we would have a fresh vision of the glory that waits for us at the end of this journey and that this fresh vision would give us the strength that is needed to persevere when things get hard. And second, my second prayer for the not yet Christians, the soon to be hopefully Christians among us, my prayer is that you too will see the beauty that waits at the end of the journey of faith and become convinced that Jesus is the only way to true happiness. All right, so this takes us to Hebrews, our text today this morning, it's Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And Hebrews 12, of course, is towards the end of the book of Hebrews. It's really getting to the, the crescendo, the climax of what the author has been speaking of throughout. And I wanted to start our series here as an introduction sermon because in many ways, these two verses, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, capture the essence of the entire letter. And they help orient us to the major themes that we're going to encounter all throughout the book of Hebrews. And most especially, this passage offers us hope for the journey by reminding us of Christ's journey. We are on a journey, but before we were ever on a journey, Christ was on a journey. And this passage gives us a clear picture of the goal that Jesus had in mind on his journey and informs us then the goal that we are to have in mind on our journey. All right, so Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 on uh, 10.08 has been read for us. Make your way there if you're not there already. I want to just give a couple points of context that will help orient not only the passage before us, but also uh, the entire sermon series that will be helpful for us to know. Um, so let me just say a quick word here. The authorship is not certain. So you'll hear me refer to the author of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews. And the reason I don't say the name is because I don't know the name of the author of Hebrews. And in fact, no one really knows the name of the author of Hebrews. All the other letters that we have in the New Testament uh, have the author's name put into it. But in Hebrews, we don't have that. Now, the author was known to the audience. The audience knew the author. The author knew the audience. But, but we don't know either in detail, the author or the audience in particular. So we're, we've, we've been exposed here in the New Testament to a letter. At one point, the church knew this, but it's, it's been lost to us in the traditions that have been handed down to us. But, but we don't have the name of the author, but we know that there's someone with apostolic authority. 
We're not sure of the location of the church. Uh, maybe in Rome, some speculate, but we don't really know. But here's what we do know. We do know that the church was made up predominantly of Jewish believers. These were devout Jews that had followed faithfully the Jewish traditions and laws. And as Jesus had come and revealed himself to be God's anointed Messiah through the resurrection, these Jews had turned towards Jesus in faith and had accepted him as Messiah. And so we have here a predominantly, maybe not exclusively, but a predominantly Jewish church. Perhaps there's some Gentiles in there as well. But it's important to understand what eventually emerged for these new communities of faith as they began to identify themselves increasingly as distinct from the Judaism that they sprung from. It's important to understand this because in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman Empire, every nation that was brought into the fold of the empire could continue to worship their own gods. That was not a problem. You could continue to worship your own gods as long as you also acknowledged and worshipped and paid homage to the Roman gods. So as long as everybody acknowledged everybody's gods, that was fine. Now, that was a problem for the Jewish people because they wouldn't acknowledge the Roman gods, but the Romans gave them a dispensation. They were the only nation among all the nations in the empire that didn't have to worship the Roman gods. The Romans uh, uh, acknowledged and esteemed venerable and ancient traditions, and because the Jewish tradition was venerable and ancient, they got a pass on this. So the Jewish people agreed to pray for the Romans, but they wouldn't pray to the Roman gods, and the Romans said that's good enough. But no one else got that kind of luxury or that kind of space. So as these early Christians are beginning to carve out a new identity that is distinct from the Jewish community, they're finding themselves between a rock and a hard spot because they're no longer increasingly seen as a Jewish sect that is under this extra dispensation of grace from the Roman Empire. They're expected to pay homage to the Roman gods because they're not seen anymore increasingly as Jews. And of course, the Jewish community which they've come from, they're now they're viewed as apostatizers. So the Jewish community looks at them as apostatizers and the Roman community looks at them as those who are insurrectionists who won't pay homage to the Roman gods. And so these early Christians, these Jewish Christians, find themselves between a rock and a hard spot and they are being tempted, and here's an important point, they're being tempted to retreat back into Judaism because that's going to solve both of those problems all at once. And so what we find in the letter of Hebrews, and the reason that the arguments are given the way that they're given, is that the author knows, the apostle who's been working with them knows, that they're being tempted to go back into Judaism, to alleviate the pressure that has come from following Jesus. And so the author will spend the entire book of Hebrews, as we will see, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Jewish promises and covenants pointed towards, and to go back to Judaism and leave behind Jesus is to leave behind everything that Judaism stood for and that God has promised in Christ. So all the arguments are going to be arguments made about the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant over and against the old covenant. The, these readers find themselves at the crossroads. Should they continue pressing forward in faith or grab the next exit ramp and go back to the old roads that they have been traveling before their belief in Jesus. All right, so the whole book of Hebrews is an extended argument for why they should not go back. All right, it's an argument for persevering, which takes us to our text. So chapters 1 through 11, all through, 
and as we're coming up to chapter 12, have been arguments that have been laid out carefully, methodically, in detail about why they should stay the course. So we get to chapter 12, we're reaching a crescendo of the, uh, of the argument. And in 12.1, we see that the author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and so forth and continue on. Who are these great cloud of witnesses that the author is referring to? Well, he's referring to what he's just said in chapter 11, which we'll spend uh, in the coming months detailed look at. But in Hebrews chapter 11, the author begins with Abraham, who is the founder of the Jewish people, and he carries it all the way into their present day, talking about those that had persevered in the faith, Abraham and his near offspring, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and then the great prophets, Moses and Samuel, the great Jewish king, David, and so forth, all the way into the present day. Some of these people of faith had persevered and had received great victories and triumphs, and some of these people of faith had persevered through great uh, tragedy and loss and had been martyred for their faith. And this term that we have, witnesses, it's uh, the same word that we often uh, translate, martyr. And so what this author is saying is that here are these that have, a martyr is one who has witnessed to the faithfulness of Christ, who has witnessed to the uh, supremacy and the goodness of Christ in the face of persecution. And so the author of Hebrews is looking back on all those that have successfully persevered in faithfulness to Christ, and he's, he's He's commending these examples to his readers as an encouragement for them to keep persevering in faithfulness to Christ. So the author is telling his readers that they're surrounded by all those who came before, giving them an example. But note here, but note here that even though the author has spent a good deal of time and energy in chapter 11 detailing all of these people that have come before, these previous generations, he doesn't tell his readers to look to them. So he says, you're surrounded by them. There are those that have gone before. They've done it. You can do it. They've persevered. You can persevere. But he doesn't say look to them. Who does he say that they should look to in this passage? This is like the Sunday school answer. You can give it. Wherever he answer is Jesus, this is the time that you can do that, right? Who does he say they should look to? He says, look to Jesus. You're surrounded by all these people, but I want you to look to Jesus, so the uh, translation that you may have in front of you uh, sometimes is translated as fix your eyes, right? You're surrounded by these witnesses, but fix your eyes on Jesus. Of all those who have run the race of faith, Jesus has run it best. He is the prime example of staying the course. He is the embodiment of steady on. The author here refers to Jesus as the author and perfecter or the founder and perfecter of faith. Jesus is the one who reveals what it is to persevere in the journey of faith. And as such, he more than anyone else is the one that we should look to as the prime example of what it means to stay the course in the face of adversity and difficulty. Sometimes, though, I think we can forget to look to Jesus as an example of faith, as an example of faithfulness. We can become so accustomed to thinking of Jesus as the perfect object of faith, the one that we have faith in. And of course, he is the one that we have faith in. But he's not just the one that we have faith in. He's, he's also the perfect example of faithfulness. Have you ever really considered that Jesus 
had to live by faith just like we have to live by faith. It's kind of an interesting way to think about Jesus, that he had to live by faith just like we have to live by faith. The eternal Son of God took upon himself our ruined humanity, and in doing so, he had to walk the road that we walked, just like we walk it. He didn't get to cheat his way through life because of his deity. Sometimes I think that we can think that, that we, we emphasize so much the, the deity of Christ that we lose sight of the fact that, that he, he had to navigate life the same way that you and I have to navigate life. He had to learn how to walk just like we had to learn how to walk. Hebrews will go on to say later that Jesus had to learn obedience just like you and I have to learn obedience. He wasn't born knowing calculus. He had to learn it just like the rest of us. When I say us, I really mean you because I don't really know calculus actually. And if we're not careful, we can cheapen the significance of Christ's faithfulness to God as though it was easy for him because of his deity to be born into our fallen world, walk down our broken path, and die upon our splintered cross. But it wasn't easy for him. Jesus, just like us, needed to persevere. But how did Jesus persevere? What was it that gave Jesus the capacity to persevere? That's what I find so intriguing about this text. Look in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, in order to persevere through the life that we have to persevere through, in order to do that, he needed to keep his mind fixed on the goal on the prize. And what was the prize, the goal that was set before him? The author of Hebrews tells us it was joy. That the thing that gave Jesus the strength and the capacity to endure the cross, which he did not want to endure, and to put up with the shame that attended that cross, and to persevere through the affliction of his Passion Week, and to walk in obedience his entire life, it was for the joy that was set out before him. He was running a race and walking a path towards a prize that was set out in the front of him. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was the expectation of joy, specifically the joy of being seated at the right hand of the Father, the highest position of honor in all creation that gave Jesus the capacity to persevere and press on. Jesus didn't win his race merely by self-denial. He didn't win his race through self-discipline or self-mastery. The power to persevere in the face of difficulty ultimately is not found. In the, when we're talking here about specifically about the Christian faith, the power to persevere is not ultimately found in self-denial or self-discipline or the self at all. Even Jesus looked beyond himself and fixed his eyes steadfastly on the joy that awaited him on the other side of the cross. And his vision of this future joy gave him strength, the needed strength to persevere through pain. And as it was with Jesus, the author of Hebrews is saying, so it is with us. We faithfully endure the trials of the present because like Jesus, we are looking forward to the joy that awaits us in the future. And there is no trial in the present not even 
the cross that can eclipse the joy that awaits for us at the end of the journey. God isn't merely asking us when he asks us to persevere in obedience. He isn't merely asking us to fall on our sword, to be martyrs, to abandon all hope of happiness and joy. He's asking us to endure patiently the trials that are in front of us, steadfastly believing that our unwavering endurance is worth the joy that awaits us at the end. So where are you wavering in your faith this morning? Where are you tempted to waver in your faith this morning? Where does faith not seem worth the effort or the cost? Some of you have prayed and prayed and prayed, and you have heard no answer. I know because, as Chris mentioned already, we we read your prayer requests every week, pray for you. And it's the same prayer request week after week after week after week after week. And perhaps you're tired of writing the same prayer request week after week after week. Why isn't God answering? Can you persevere in prayer? Some of you are laboring under the crushing weight of physical disabilities that seem to have no relief and will have no relief, for which there are no medical solutions for. Some of you are just about ready to give up on a broken marriage or give up on a wayward child, and some of you are just about ready to give up on yourselves. Some of you this morning are being tempted to make choices of convenience and compromise that will reduce your workload, but also reduce your integrity. Faithfulness comes at a cost. There is no way around it. That's why the author tells us here in this passage that we must lay aside sins, but not only sins. We must lay aside the weights of this world that entangle us and that drag us down, even the good things that stand in the way of us running this race in faithfulness. Faithfulness will inevitably mean denying yourself pleasure and opportunity and luxuries that those around you indulge in. It will mean a loss of profit or foregoing a life of ease. It will mean that you have to keep trying when you want to give up. Keep praying when it seems like no one is listening. Keep reading the Bible when the words seem to lie dead on the page. Keep owning the name of Christ even when it costs you your relationship with your friends and your family. But here's the major takeaway that I want to leave with you this morning. The power that propels us forward in faith, in the life of faith, is not merely self-denial or self-discipline. See, sometimes I think we can, when we encounter difficulties in faith, when we encounter difficulties in our Christian walk, and we're, we're wrestling and struggling with either sins that we are committing and we can't seem to get past, or circumstances that don't seem to have, a, aren't alleviated, or difficult relationships, we can, we can begin to lower the vision, lower our vision from the horizon of the future down into the present. And we focus in on the struggles themselves, or we focus in on our own capacities to overcome these struggles. And what Jesus shows us in his example is that when we encounter difficulties, we need to lift our eyes ever more to the horizon to remember the prize to which God is calling us forward in Christ, the prize of joy. And like Jesus, we we must run our race with this joy always in view. Just as Jesus found strength to go on by fixing his gaze on the joy set before him, so too we find strength to go on by fixing our gaze on the joy that is set before us. 
God made promises to Jesus, and those promises became a source of strength to Jesus as he persevered through faith. Jesus has made promises to us, and those promises become for us a source of joy and strength as we persevere on in faith. Just as the Father promised Jesus a kingdom, so too Jesus has promised us a participation in his kingdom. Just as the Father has promised Jesus a resurrection, so too Jesus promised us a resurrection. Just as Jesus' Father promised to raise his name above all other names, so too Jesus has promised to raise us up with him into the heavenlies, to be seated with him just as Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, in one of his parables in the Gospels, he tells the story of a master with three servants and The faithful servants at the end come, and the reward that they are given is to enter into the joy of their master. God is the fount of all living joy. Jesus pressed forward in faith through adversity and difficulty to enter into this joy in its fullness, and he invites us to follow behind him in his steps, pressing forward through adversity and difficulty, keeping in mind always the joy that waits for us in the future. We don't experience the fullness of this joy in the present. Crosses aren't fun. Difficulties aren't enjoyable. But the knowledge and the belief that this joy waits for us gives us hope in the present. And and Jesus really, as we'll learn through Hebrews, fundamentally is that joy that waits for us at the end of the journey. And the good news about Jesus is though he waits for us at the end, he's also with us in the present. And so we can begin to partake even now of this joy that we are pressing forward into. Some of us, I suspect, have lost sight of this joy that is to come. And the trials of life are weighing you down and it's buried your head and you, you need to look back up and you need to see the joy that God is offering us in Christ. My prayer is that this sermon series would be an opportunity for you to be reminded of the joy that is waiting for you, that you will, in a new embrace of that joy, that you will have the capacity to persevere down whatever cross the Lord is asking you uh, to walk, down whatever journey the Lord is asking you to walk upon, even if it has a cross in the middle of it. For those that aren't Christians here, I want you to participate in this journey through Hebrews with us. St. Augustine, he says this, and I, I think this is a great quote. He says, it is the decided opinion of all who use their brains. I like how that reads. It's the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all men desire to be happy. Christianity isn't a religion that calls for just sacrifice and self-denial. It's a religion ultimately that calls human beings towards the one thing that can provide happiness, God himself. So here we are invited into a journey that holds out at the end of that journey a vision of happiness. And whether you are a Christian, not a Christian, a Buddhist, a Muslim, a a Hindu, an atheist, an agnostic, every human being wants to be happy. And God has no problem with that. He, in fact, wants us to be happy. Augustine goes on to say this, but who are happy and how they become so 
These are the questions about which the weakness of human understanding stirs endless and angry controversies in which philosophers have wasted their strength and expended their leisure. You go back in the human, uh, the human tradition of human philosophy, it is, could be summed up almost in one question, how does the human being become happy? Christianity has an answer to that question how to become happy. So I invite you, even as a non-Christian, to participate with us throughout this journey to see the vision of happiness and joy that is held out to us by God and his word. Well, if you have come this morning with a burden, many of us do, no doubt. Not all of us. Some of us are doing pretty well. Some of us are eating the bear uh, this week. But many of us are being eaten by the bear, uh, and this week maybe has been hard for you. Lift your eyes to the glory that God has promised us in Christ. Lift your eyes to Christ himself. He is the joy that is set before us. Amen? Father, thank you that you have given us Christ, that he has gone before us and he blazed the trail. And we thank you that he has showed us how to walk and what it means to fix our eyes on the prize that is before us and to not allow our trials and our troubles and even our own shortcomings to be such that they distract us and cloud our vision from the great day of salvation that waits for us in the future. So God, I pray that you would begin even now, but uh, as we engage in this journey through Hebrews together, that you would increasingly open up our eyes to see the glory and the wonder and the goodness of Jesus and that it's in that glory and wonder that we can even now begin to participate in that would give us the capacity to persevere in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name.